Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. He doesn't give us that direct clue anymore, and he just leaves it up to us to identify the, the miraculous signs that he's laying out for us. But when we put them all together and we see the big picture of these signs all working together, what they do is they lead us to a big envelope of cash Uh, at the end. Well, not really, Uh, but they do lead us to this really important truth that he's trying to point us to throughout the whole thing. And so when you look at the Gospel of John, you can really understand it as, okay, this little section has its particular truth that it's trying to uh, get us to understand and then apply to our life. But he's also, so those are kind of maybe the micro message, uh, but there's also a really big macro message that he's trying to get, up, get across in the way that he's telling his gospel. And the, the absolute key to understanding that is, is seeing these signs or these clues. Now, I don't want to spoil the fun for you and tell you the big truth that is at the end that would, uh, that would really um, make the anticipation of our long series and walk through the Gospel of John a little less exciting. So I won't spoil the fun and tell you the truth that is in the envelope at the end, uh, but, I do want to, but since this is the first clue, I want to orient us uh, to this business of finding miraculous signs and what in the world is he trying to do on a large scale. But in order to understand the purpose of the signs, we have to go back to the passage that was just before the one that Yvonne read this morning. And I want to, so I want to read to you John chapter 1, verses 50, 47 through 51. 47 through 51. Because what you realize, and this is true for all of the Gospels, but it's especially true in the Gospel of John, uh, that absolutely nothing is on accident. Everything is absolutely intentional in the way that the stories are told, the details that are included, the order that they are told in. Everything is, in fact, absolutely 100% intentional in how he tells it. So right before he tells us about the very first sign, uh, he tells us this little uh, crazy, uh, odd story. Uh, And so I want to read it to you. It's uh, John chapter 1, verses 47 through 51. Now, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, uh, he said to him, Here, truly, is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Well, how do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are, in fact, the Son of God, and you are the King of Israel. And here's, here's where it gets interesting. Verse 50, Jesus said, uh, You believe because I saw you under the fig tree, uh, but you will see greater things than that. And then he added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Isn't that interesting? Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and then the angels of God ascending and descending On the Son of Man. Now, if you picture this, uh, angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, this is really almost comical, right? Uh, When my kids, when my girls were smaller, we would play a game where I grabbed their hands, uh, and then they would would walk up my legs, uh, sometimes run, 
uh, most of the time run. So I would grab their hands, they would run up my legs, up my chest, and then they would flip their legs over this way so that they do a flip and then land uh, on their feet. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've done this? Yeah, a lot of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, watch your chin when you're doing this as a parent, by the way. This is very dangerous stuff. Uh, but they would, they, would, they, would, they would run up and then, and then go down, flip, and, and land on the ground uh, on their feet, of course. Uh, no harm, no foul. Now, you could say that they were literally ascending and descending on their dad, right? Uh, this is not what Jesus is talking about. Say, this is what you pay for, that kind of profound truth right there. Uh, this is worth the price of admission. So what, actually what Jesus is doing is he's actually referring to Jacob's ladder in the Old Testament. Uh, in Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 17, uh, it tells the story of Jacob who is fleeing his brother Esau, who wants to kill him because Jacob has stolen his birthright. Uh, but in his fleeing, Jacob uh, has to stop for the night. Uh, and while he stopped, he has a dream. And in the dream, there is a ladder that goes uh, from earth uh, all the way up to heaven. Uh, and in the dream, angels are going up and down this ladder uh, that reaches from heaven to earth or from earth to heaven. Now, as part of this dream or what we might call a vision, uh, God then tells Jacob and he says, I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. And Jacob wakes up and he says, surely the Lord is in this place. Uh, now, the point of Jacob's ladder uh, was that it showed that God was with Jacob in that place, uh, in his fleeing, in his time of, of discouragement, in his time of trouble. Uh, and the truth is, is that would be a great uh, passage of Scripture to preach on, that, that in, our, in our trouble, in our most trying times, uh, God wants to, to give us a vision that he is there, that he is with us, that his, his presence has not left us, that he hasn't abandoned us at all. In fact, Jacob then names that place that he stopped. He names it uh, Bethel or Bethel, uh, which literally means God's house. And so, so Jacob has this phenomenal experience of the presence of God, a, a dream, a vision that gives him the assurance that the presence of God is with him in his time of trouble. Now, a traditional understanding of Jacob's dream was that uh, the point of the angels going up and down the ladder was that it symbolically created a link uh, between heaven and earth. In other words, it was a way of saying that when you worshiped God in his house, God was really present, that, that God is there, that there is, in fact, this, this link between what we might call earth and then what we might understand to be heaven, that, that maybe the two aren't so disconnected after all. And so the whole point was this, this, of this ladder and angels going up and down, that that symbolically created this link between heaven and earth. Uh, author and writer and speaker and bishop uh, N.T. Wright uh, says this about verse 51. He says, verse 51 seems to be a tight-packed and evocative way of saying, don't think that all you will see is one or two remarkable acts of insight, but rather what you will see from now on is the reality toward which Jacob's ladder was pointing like a signpost. If you follow me, it's as though Jesus is saying, if you follow me, you'll be watching what it looks like 
when heaven and earth are open to each other. If you follow me, you'll be watching what it looks like when heaven and earth are open to one another. Now remember, John is not a historical writer, he's a theological writer. Or another way of saying that is, he's a theologian, not a historian. And so immediately following the, the story of Jesus' encounter with Nathaniel, where he, tells, he, he then tells this story of a wedding in Cana where Jesus turns water into wine and he calls it the very first sign. And the treasure hunt begins where we might identify all of these signs and what are they ultimately leading us to. And so what I want to help us understand this morning as we look at the very first sign, this, uh, the, the water transformed into wine at a wedding, is that the purpose of the signs or the purpose of the clues throughout the whole gospel is, is they are to work as a signpost pointing us to the ways in which the ways of heaven overlap with the ways of earth. And each sign is a moment when heaven is opened up and the transforming power of God's love then burst into the present world. And so there are moments when heaven and earth are in fact intersecting with one another, uh, that they're getting all tangled up with one another. And, and, And for us, that's a really important theological point for us to understand, that the reality is, is that despite all of the evidence to the contrary, where we feel like, man, maybe all is lost, and maybe all is broken in this place, we, we must learn to recognize the ways in which heaven is intersecting and invading earth. Does that make sense? I hope so. Uh, because it's absolutely crucial for us to understand. If we are going to hold on to hope, we must understand the reality that heaven and the ways of heaven are intersecting, interceding, invading, and connecting with the ways of earth. And what John does is in this beautifully written and geniusly put together story of the gospel. He puts together a whole series of signs. And he says, when the ways of God intersect the brokenness of earth, this is what happens. This is what happens. And I want to say to you today that this is still happening. You know, we tend to think of of heaven as being so far off Maybe it's up there, maybe it's out there, maybe it's a different dimension. We don't really know. Um, We read books about these near-death experiences where people say that they've been there and then they've come back. Uh, But I think, you know, until until we've passed away, we don't really know, right? In other words, we we ought to talk about all things related to the afterlife with some measure of caution because none of us have been there. (laughs) And yet... At the very same time, we need to hold together the reality that we see the ways in which heaven is, is intersecting with the, ways of, with the brokenness of earth, that this is still a reality today. You know, we, we tend to think of heaven as being so far off, but it isn't, because Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And so I want us to kind of lose these concepts of heaven as being a disembodied experience with everyone wearing a halo and has a harp, but, but rather begin to understand that heaven is where God's will is done perfectly all the time. And what Jesus teaches us to pray is he says, take that idea of heaven where God's will is done perfectly and done consistently and all the time and just pray that that would be true here on earth. So pray that God's kingdom would come and pray that God's will would be done on earth right here, right now, just as it is in heaven. And so we need, to, we need to close the gap between these two concepts of heaven and earth. And we need to just really begin to hold, grab a hold of Jacob's vision where there's a, a ladder and angels are going up and down. And there's a link between heaven and earth. And recognize the ways in which he- heaven is invading earth. And I think we should really learn to pray this prayer seriously. We should, not, we should learn, first of all, to take this prayer seriously. But then we should also learn to pray this prayer seriously. Um, I was convicted as a parent that every day I send my child to school and they learn this thing called the Pledge of Allegiance. And there's certainly nothing wrong with the Pledge of Allegiance. But they say it every day at school. And so they have it memorized from the earliest points in life. And I was really challenged by the fact that here my children are, are, are growing up And they don't know the Lord's Prayer. They don't have that memorized, but they have the Pledge of Allegiance memorized. And I needed to offer offer an alternative liturgy to the liturgy that they participate in every morning when they say the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, Because they're not the same thing. (laughs) They're not the same thing. And so our nightly routine now is, in addition to all the other ways that we pray and uh, pray for our friends or our family or whatever as a family, uh, we also say the Lord's Prayer. And, I, and I'm happy to say that at age five and age eight, our kids have it down. It's solid. They know it. And that's not to brag on us as a parent. It's rather to say that I was convicted <laughs> because we weren't praying that prayer. We weren't taking the prayer seriously. And I think if we look at the brokenness of our world, we need to be able to say and pray with conviction and with passion and with great faith, Heavenly Father, May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth, right here, right now, just as it is in heaven. In fact, in light of all that is going on, looking, I, th- I encourage us to begin looking for places where the beauty of heaven is getting all tangled up with the mess of earth. And in that space where heaven and earth meet, then we can begin to see the other. Then we can begin to see ourselves. And in the space where heaven and earth meet, we can begin to see the possibility of forgiveness. Then we can begin to seek reconciliation. We can begin to understand each other's differences. We can begin to get rid of dualistic thinking. It's either this way or that. It's either right or left. It's this or that, this or that but we can get rid of that kind of dualistic thinking and begin to see things in, in, a more, more, uh, in a broader way. And then in that space where heaven and earth intersect, that is where we can be transformed. And not just as individuals and not just as people, but as, com- as communities and as the church, the capital C church. And I want to submit to you that, in fact, that is what this story 
is all about. That at the most basic level, this story out of John chapter 2, the very first sign in our treasure hunt of signs in the Gospel of John, at the most basic level, this is a story of transformation. It tells us, that it gets us connected to the reality that when heaven gets tangled up with earth, things are transformed and people are transformed and they are changed forever. And so John tells this story of embodied transformation as a way to help us to believe that we also can be transformed. Are you with me? And here's what I mean by embodied transformation. Our own transformation is, is, not tan- is so intangible, right? Uh, as we think about ourselves being changed, it becomes very intangible. It's like I used to be selfish, but now I'm a little less so. It used to be that I, could o- I, I couldn't see myself or understand myself, but now it's a bit more clear. And, and so all of these things are, in fact, the work of the Spirit in our lives and in our hearts, but it's also very intangible. How do you measure or how do you, uh, how do you symbolize this idea that, well, I used to be selfish, but now I'm not? That's so secret. No one can see that. Uh, This idea that, well, I never used to understand myself or see myself, but now things are a little bit more clear. Uh, No one could look at you and see that. No one could see your transformation uh, happening on the inside and in our hearts. And so our own story and our own journey of transformation tends to be really intangible. And so what I mean by embodied transformation is, what, is that Jesus takes something very real and tangible, like water, and then he turns it into something else that is very real and very tangible, into wine. And this tangible story of transformation gives credibility to our own stories of transformation. Does that make sense? In fact, what we need all of the time is some sort of tangible expression of these, uh, of these profound truths. And what we have in John chapter 2 is, in fact, the ancient version of the butterfly story. <laughs> uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of children's books have been written about the transformation of the caterpillar into a butterfly. Um, and they do it in order to teach kids lessons that they otherwise would not be able to grab a hold of because they're, they're not tangible. Right? And, and, and kids are so concrete and so tangible that they need something to hold on to in order to grab a hold of the truth that's being communicated. And so authors uh, take this, this beautiful story of nature, of the caterpillar turning into a butterfly, and they say, oh, what a perfect opportunity to tell kids these important truths. These important truths like things aren't always like they seem. Uh, or the important truth like God isn't finished with you yet. Uh, right? we, have a, we have a book on our bookshelf that's about this caterpillar and he's really sad because in fact he sees all the butterflies and he's like, why did God make me so brown and boring and all I can do is crawl on the leaves and really I would love to be bright and beautiful and colorful and fly against the bright blue sky. And so he's really sad and he, he's just like, man, uh, 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 he's just not embracing who God has made him to be. And it just, in the end it just tells a story about how, well, God isn't finished with you yet. Because, of course, in the end, he's this butterfly with bright and beautiful wings flying against the blue sky. And, and, and these lessons, like maybe don't give up, are all taught from this embodied transformation story of the caterpillar to the butterfly. 
And I want to say to you that the, the, way in this, the, the way that this story functions is similar. John tells the story of how Jesus participated and was the causing agent in an embodied transformation. Something physical, tangible that you could taste was turned into something completely different, but yet still tangible that you could taste and see and feel. And so John is reminding us ultimately that transformation and change is possible. And I would want to say to you also that this is the genius of Jesus. This is the genius of Jesus. He teaches us profound truth, but he always embodies the truth in something physical and concrete and tangible so that we can grab a hold of it. And so forget any idea of the Jesus story or the gospel that tries to disembody it. That's never what Jesus is doing. Jesus is never trying to take, take sort of big truths of the world and then take them out of physicality or make them intangible. He, Jesus is doing the exact opposite. He's teaching us about the things that are the, the deepest truths of the world in our lives that are intangible, but he's always embodying them in some profound way. He's always making them concrete. He's always making them tangible. And so he doesn't just give us lessons about the moral credibility of reaching out to the oppressed. He doesn't, he doesn't just do that, but he does that, and then he stands up for the woman caught in adultery and saves her life. And it would be one thing for Jesus to just say, you know, stand up for the, the, the oppressed. That is morally credible and a good thing to do. But he doesn't do that. He says, stand up for the oppressed. Give voice for the voiceless. And then he stands up and saves the life of a woman who was caught in adultery. And actually, it's the, it's the embodied nature of Jesus' teaching that makes his ministry so scandalous. If Jesus only just had good ideas, uh, then he, was, he would be a lot safer to the establishment. But Jesus always communicates these profound truths, but then embodies them. He, he doesn't just tell us to care for the poor and the sick, but he grounds that teaching in the act of healing. And so I want to say to you that there is prophetic power in the specific, in the grounded, and in the tangible. There is prophetic power in the specific, the grounded, and the tangible. Let me bring this home. In case, in case we're having a hard time grabbing hold of this. Some of you are like, I wish you would make this just a little bit more tangible. Um, so let me make it a little more tangible. I grew up in, in modern American evangelical church. And in modern, in modern American evangelical church, the thing to do was stand up for Jesus. Defend Jesus. And so what we came up with was a whole system of beliefs, of truths, of propositions, uh, a whole bunch of stuff that would say, we need to stand up for Jesus and do this, and we need to do it this way, we need to believe this way, we need to act this way, we need to do all these kinds of things. And, we're in, and in doing so, we are standing up for Jesus. And just recently, I feel like I've come to the realization that what the church needs is a lot less people standing up for Jesus, and a lot more people standing up with Jesus. And here's the difference. 
Jesus does not need us to stand up for him and defend him. He defeated death through the resurrection. I'm pretty sure he's got things covered in terms of defending him. What he needs is people who will take his teaching seriously and stand up with him. Who will seek to go the extra mile. Who will seek to love their enemies. Who will seek to pray for those who persecute them. Who will dare to forgive the wrongdoers. That's what Jesus needs. And that's what the church needs. The church needs a lot less of people standing up for Jesus. And they need a lot more of people standing up with Jesus. Are you with me? That's what we need. Because when we stand up with Jesus, we go from a whole bunch of ideas out there that we think you're wrong about and you as whoever is outside of our camp. And we're working just purely in the realm of ideas. But when we stand up with Jesus and take his teachings seriously and walk in the way of the kingdom, then all of a sudden we are bringing credibility to our own transformation. But if all we're doing is spouting a whole bunch of things that we are against, but we're never acting in accordance for all the things that we are for, then actually what we're doing is we're just, we've just completely disembodied our whole faith system. And what we need is people who will stand up with Jesus and follow his teachings and take him seriously. There is prophetic power in the specific the grounded, and the tangible. And I want to lead us to the table this morning because this is, in fact, part of the beauty of communion. Jesus doesn't just instruct us to remember his death and resurrection. Jesus doesn't just say, in your quiet time, when you're doing devotions, remember me. Jesus doesn't say, I I would love it if you would do a mental exercise that would draw your attention to my own ministry, death, and resurrection. He doesn't do that. What Jesus does is he gives us a meal, something physical, something tangible, something concrete that we can taste, that we can touch. And then Jesus says, whenever you do this, then also remember me. Now, what we have probably lost sight of, given the fact that over the course of church history, we have come to make a ritual out of this meal. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's good, bad, or otherwise. But in the very first followers of Jesus, what Je- the context in which Jesus says, every time that you do this, remember me, uh, was just what we would consider a regular meal or what we might call a potluck. It was the body of Christ coming together for fellowship, for food, uh, for prayer, encouragement, lifting one another up, accountability. And Jesus said, you know, whenever you do that, also remember me. And then he took a piece of bread and he said, for this bread is my body and it is broken for you. Then he took a cup filled with wine. He said, this cup is filled with my blood that has been poured out for you. And there there, there is nothing in the world, particularly in that culture and in our own, more ordinary, more common than bread 
and wine. And so he takes the most ordinary but tangible and physical thing surrounded around a meal. And he says, whenever the church is gathered together to eat and to drink, do it in remembrance of me. And he invites us then to remember him every time we come around the table. Because as we prepare to gather as people who hold different opinions and perspectives, who come from different backgrounds and convictions, we all gather as one family in Christ. I want to take a moment uh, to read to you a, a section of this book called Searching for Sunday. Uh, the author's name is, is Rachel Evans. And uh, this book is just a collection, really, of short essays or chapters uh, about her search for finding a church home or believing in the church again. Uh, you may be here today, and uh, you may be in that place where you're like, you know, I just want to believe in the church again, uh, for whatever reason, and any number of reasons. Uh, but uh, this book, Searching for Sunday, has so much, I think, to say to us and to those who might be in that position. Um, the subtitle is Loving, Leaving, and then finding uh, the church. And I want to read to you a section uh, from a chapter called Open Table. It says this, Participation in the Lord's Supper, writes Richard Beck, uh, quote, is an inherently moral act. In the first century church and in our own time, people who would have never associated with each other in the larger society sit as equals around the table of the Lord. The Eucharist, therefore, is not simply a symbolic expansion of the moral circle. I want you to hear that. The Lord's Supper uh, is not just a symbolic expansion of the moral circle. Uh, the Lord's Supper becomes a profoundly subversive political event in the lives of the participants. For the sacrament brings real people, divided in the larger world, into sweaty, intimate flesh and blood embrace where there shall be no difference between them and the rest, end quote. So that's her quoting Richard Beck. Now she goes on to say this. I would be lying if I said that this sweaty, intimate flesh and blood embrace that I am, that I, uh, sorry, I would be lying if I said I relish in this sweaty, intimate flesh and blood embrace without reservation. For sure, I'm happy to pass the bread to someone like Sarah Miles or the neighbor who mows our lawn when we're out of town. But Sarah Palin or Glenn Beck or those gatekeeper types who I was just talking about, not so much. Because on any given Sunday, I might spot six or seven people who have wronged or hurt me, people whose politics, theology, or personalities drive me crazy. In fact, the church is positively crawling with people who don't deserve to be there, starting with me. But the table can transform even our enemies into companions. And the table reminds us that as brothers and sisters adopted into God's family and invited to God's banquet, we're stuck with each other. We're family, so we might as well make peace. The table teaches us that faith isn't about being right or good or in agreement. Faith is about feeding and being fed. In my struggle to find a church, I've often felt that if I could just find the right denomination or the right congregation or if I could just become the right person or believe the right things, then my search would be over at last. But rights got nothing to do with it. 
In fact, waiting around for right will leave you waiting around forever. The church is God saying, hey, I'm throwing a banquet and all of these mismatched and messed up people are invited. So here, have some wine. In the midst of all that you are facing in your life, in the midst of all that we are facing and have faced in our corporate life together, in all that our nation is facing, and regardless of where you fall on uh, the political divide, I can, we can all agree that our nation is in duress right now. My encouragement to you as your pastor is this. May we look for the ways that heaven is intersecting earth and that God is breaking through. And may we know that transformation and change is in fact possible and that all is not lost. And may we begin at the table. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together and then I want to invite us to the table together. Heavenly Father, you have spoken to us today. You have challenged us. You have encouraged us by your word. So I pray in these moments as we gather around the table, the banquet table, as the church, and as we join with millions of people all around the world from all different expressions of faith who are also coming to the table to take, to eat, to take and to drink, and to remember. God, I pray that in doing so today, we would not only understand that you are with us, but God, may we experience the beauty of heaven today. May we experience your presence in a unique way that we can say with great confidence that heaven is not way up there and out there, but that heaven, at least in part, is breaking in. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Lord, give us courage to stand with you. And God, may you bring unity, healing, reconciliation to us all as we gather around and receive these elements. May we take in your very life. Lord, we love you. We give you thanks. We give you praise. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.